following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Turn in your Bibles to, well, that's loud. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 11. And in case you didn't notice, I am not Pastor Mike. Uh, if you came to first service, you would have seen Pastor Mike here. Um, unfortunately, he has been quite sick the last few days and uh, made every effort to preach first service, um, but uh, that was about as far as, as that went. So um, he fortunately has his notes available, and so um, I get to preach the same sermon he preached first, sermon, first service. So um, I'm excited to do that. I was teasing Pastor Mike a little bit this morning when he first came in before I realized that he was sick. And I said, hey, you know, way to cherry pick like the easiest, most preachable passage in the whole Bible there at the end of Romans 11. And uh, little did I know that uh, he was going to drop his notes on me later on. So here we are. Um, But we are in Romans chapter 11 this morning, uh, verses 33 to 36. So if you have found that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Paul writes, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord, we pray that this anthem of praise would echo in our hearts this morning as we contemplate the greatness of who you are and the unfathomable riches of your grace on our lives through the gospel. God, may we be a people whose hearts are more inclined to you through the Uh, consideration of your word this morning. God, thank you for Pastor Mike and for his desire to proclaim you and pray that you would even be with him here today and heal him and restore him quickly so that he can return to the ministry and the work that you have given to him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We are here at the conclusion of Romans chapter 11. If you're familiar at all with the book of Romans, it kind of is broken into two primary sections. We have the first 11 chapters that are very doctrinally and theologically oriented, and then Paul makes a change, a shift in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, based on all of this rich theology he has laid out, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he goes on from there, starting in chapter 12 and for the remainder of the book, to give an encouragement and exhortation towards how we then are to live based on the theology that he has just gone through in the first 11 chapters. But Paul concludes his theological explanations and arguments in chapter 11, verse 32. And there is this window between where he finishes his theology, and before he moves to his application, that he can't help but erupt in praise. And maybe one of the strongest um, exaltations 
of all that God is that we see in the whole Bible here in verses 33 to 36. And so we come this morning to the sermon entitled, A Timely Burst of Praise. And as we consider this exclamation of praise, we're going to see why it is so timely, how it corrects faulty thinking, and what transformed living it inspires. Why it's so timely, how it corrects faulty thinking, and what transformed lives it inspires. Now, the whole flow of the book of Romans is based on um, a primary consideration of all are condemned rightfully. We are all under the judgment and wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. And then we see this fantastic exclamation at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. There, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the overall theme of Romans, we're seeing that, that we are all rightly condemned. We are rightly under condemn, condemnation. But there is no condemnation because there is salvation. And as Paul has been contemplating and writing and considering these rich theological truths, he explodes into this radical exclamation of praise and worship here in verses 33 to 36. It's like he can't help himself before he gets to the application. And so as we go through 33 to 36, I want to give you a kind of a three-point outline just for this section. We're going to look at God's sovereign greatness, God's merciful goodness, and His unrivaled glory. Sovereign greatness, merciful goodness, and unrivaled glory. And as we look first, we see God's sovereign greatness in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depths. The depths is, is proclaiming that this is beyond human comprehension. This is, this is beyond what fits in our mind. Imagine that you're standing at the beach and you're looking out over the, the ocean and trying to understand how much water is there. How deep does it go? How can I even begin to capture in my mind all that is there? And this is the idea of the, the depths that these th three things he's going to talk about, the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God are so beyond what we can wrap our minds around. He talks about, oh, the depths of the riches. The riches are everything in the universe. Everything belongs to Him. God owns it all. There isn't one square inch on earth or in, throughout anywhere in the universe that Jesus doesn't declare it is mine. He owns it all. He owns beyond what we can understand. He owns what we don't even know about. Our understanding of the universe is consistently and constantly expanding further and further. There are aspects in the universe that go out on both the micro level and on the micro level that we don't even have any understanding of today that at some point in the future we will, but it all belongs to God. It is all beyond our comprehension. Oh, the depth of the riches of all that He owns, everything. Oh, the depth of the wisdom the wisdom being God's purpose for the nation, for the nations, for all nations. God has purpose in all that He does. God has, has purpose that we don't even necessarily understand. We think that we do, and we look around at what's going on in this world, but God and God only is all wise. We are not 
wise. We don't have wisdom, especially in comparison to who God is. Psalm 104, 24 says, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. Daniel 2, 20, blessed be the name of God to whom belong wisdom and might. Ephesians 3 talks about the manifold wisdom of God and on and on throughout Scripture. God is wise. We think that we're wise. And the reality is none of us are wise, especially in comparison to who God is. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God's purpose for all people, for all nations, for everything that He does. God knows what He is doing. God knows absolutely what He is doing in every way, in every sense, at every time, in every aspect. Everything that happens in life is under the wisdom of God. He is all-wise, and He's beyond our comprehension in that wisdom. And all knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. This is the means that he employs in attaining his goal. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what has happened. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what you are thinking. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what your desires are. He knows what your hopes are. He knows what your stress is. He knows what your anxieties are. He knows what you're worried about. He knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows it all. And everything that he knows is under the umbrella of his wisdom, and he owns everything. This is an an overall declaration of the ultimate radical sovereignty of God in all things. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. 1 Kings 8 says, You only know the hearts of all children of mankind. Psalm 147, Great is our Lord. His understanding is beyond measure. God knows everything. God is all wise. God owns everything. And it's all beyond our comprehension. And then we see it says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments, this is not him standing as as judge over what is right and wrong. In this sense, in this context, it's talking about his purposes and his decrees. It's beyond understanding. How unsearchable are his judgments? Who are we to question why God does whatever he does? He has ultimate purpose in what he does and it is for his glory and for our good. How unsearchable are his judgments? We can't can't question them. We can't stand in judgment of what he is doing. How unsearchable are his judgments. There's a, um, a girl who uh, came to our church through middle school youth group and has gone on and is now um, relatively famous. Um, and I was actually listening to a podcast um, that she was featured on just this week. Um, came through our church. And it broke my heart to hear her talking about um, her abandonment of her faith. And um, the context of the podcast was focusing on people who had been raised in the church and why they had left their faith. And this was an entirely secular approach to the, the, whole, the whole discussion. And she was citing on this podcast that she had questions about God, that God wasn't 
answering in ways that she approved of. She didn't approve of what God would do or of what God would say. And so, therefore, she concluded God cannot exist. She was standing in judgment of God's judgments. She was standing in judgment of God's decrees. Paul here is saying how unsearchable are his judgments. We can't can't weigh God's judgments, God's purposes, God's decrees. They are perfect. They are right. He is God. We're not. Who are we to question how he goes to bring about his plan? But I want you to keep in mind that as we go through this, he is God and he is the one in control and he is good. And there is purpose towards our joy eternally in all that he does. And yet somehow we think that our wisdom is going to supersede his, that our control, our sovereignty, and we want to wrestle things into place to accomplish what we want to accomplish because we think we know better as to what will bring about joy. And Paul is coming to this conclusion here after 11 chapters of theology saying, God is totally in control. Who am I to question any of that? And it elicits a response not of judgment, not of questioning, not of fear, not of anger, but of joy and worship and praise because God knows better than he does. How unsearchable are his judgments. And then he goes on from there, how inscrutable are his ways. Try dropping that word into your lunchtime conversation today. See if you can just work in inscrutable someplace. Um, Inscrutable are his ways. This is the idea that he has ways that are so multifaceted and there's things going on all over the place in different directions at different times. He has a handle on all of it and we can't understand how it all fits together. This is is, uh, what LeVar Ball wanted to be this past week. If you know who LeVar Ball is, he's the father of Lonzo Ball, an NBA basketball player. Lonzo Ball was recently traded from the Lakers to the Pelicans. All the last year, his father is saying, don't trade my son to the Pelicans. Don't trade my son to the Pelicans. And then he was interviewed this last week, and the interviewer was asking questions, and and LeVar Ball says, yeah, I wanted all along for my son to be traded to the Pelicans. And the interviewer is looking at him like, what? You've been saying all along that you didn't want that to happen. And LeVar says, Well, see, what you don't understand is you guys are all playing checkers. I'm playing chess. Like, I had this manipulated and and orchestrated all along by saying, don't trade him, that that's exactly what I wanted. Now, I don't believe him for even a remote second that that's what he was trying to do. But he was was essentially saying, "I'm I'm, I'm almost like God. I could, like, coordinate all this, and you guys just don't understand all of this. That's the idea of how inscrutable are his ways. God is orchestrating everything really. He's not just blowing smoke like LeVar Ball was. He actually is coordinating all of these things and making all this happen. And I don't know what the example is. I mean, he's playing chess and we're not even playing. We're not playing anything. He's doing calculus. We're trying to figure out what one plus one is. He is so far beyond where he is and how he is coordinating everything for his glory and for our good. And we, and, and we don't have any any understanding of that at all? How inscrutable are his ways beyond our comprehension? Job 9 verse 10 says, talking about God, who does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. We can't trace or track what God is doing, but we can trust him. We can't trace or track what he is doing, but we can trust him. His decisions are totally self-motivated, completely his. They're untraceable by our finite beings. 
So these verses show the vast difference between God's greatness and our human weakness. And then Paul goes on and asks three rhetorical questions that he borrows from Isaiah chapter 40 and from Job 41. And he asks in verse 34 here of Romans 11, For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has known God's mind? Who can say, I understand everything that God understands? I know exactly what God is doing in every single situation. Now, the reality is, we know a lot of what God is doing. He's revealed to us in His Word what His ultimate purposes are and what His heart is. There's a lot that we can know about God, but we don't know anything close to the mind of God. He is far beyond who we are, and who are we to say that we have any understanding? No one knows the mind of God. He has no captain, no supervisor, no one who tells him what to do. And then Paul asks at the end of verse 34, who has been his counselor? Who has given God advice? Who has counseled God? Who has directed God? And the answer to these questions obviously is it's no one. No one has known the mind of God. No one is God's counselor. Isaiah 40 praises God's incomparable power and how He can restore His people. And in in verse 13 of Isaiah 40, it says that no one gives God advice, but He is full of wisdom and greatness. God is beyond our ability to counsel Him or to know Him fully. And then Paul says in Verse 35 here in chapter 11, for who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Or in Job, it actually says, Job says, who has given, um, or God, I'm sorry, asks Job in Job 41, who has given to me that I should repay him? God is asking the question, who has given to me that I should repay him? Isn't that a subtle trap that we fall into, even those of us who have been raised in the church and you know all the theology And we think somehow that if we do certain things, God owes us or that God will deliver something for us. I think even though intellectually we know the theology that disputes that, I think that we fall into that trap. Well, if I just do this, this, and this, God's going to do this for me. And we think I can earn some favor that will compel God to do what I want. I want this objective. If I do this, this, and this, God will give me what I want. God, and we we might not even think that directly, but there is something subtle that seeps into our thinking and into our minds that I think that we are tempted to conclude in certain situations that God owes us. Who has given a gift to him, to God, that he might be repaid? You have nothing to give to God. I have nothing to give to God that God would owe us anything. We don't make God anything more than what he already is. There is no obligation God has to us. God's obligations are entirely to himself. And again, that's a good thing. In Job chapter 38, it's clear that Job has too small of a view of God and too big of a view of himself. And I think that's where we end up a lot of times. We think too little of God and too much of ourselves. And really it's the basis for almost all theology that goes wrong. Anything, anywhere we go wrong, it's because we're thinking too little of God and too much of ourselves. And we want to force God to fit into the box that we create. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't even owe us answers to our questions. Lots of our questions He does answer, but maybe we don't understand them at certain points. 
But God doesn't owe us answers. There's lots of questions He doesn't answer. He doesn't owe us the answers. What we owe Him is submission to what He does tell us and embracing of what He does tell us, even if we don't understand them, even if we have questions. In Job 41, God says, Hey, Job, if you're terrified to stand before the Leviathan, how much more terrified should you be to demand a trial before me who created the Leviathan? We shouldn't put God on trial. We shouldn't think that we have a case to be made to God, that God owes us. This is all overall a a lesson in, in sovereignty. Keep in mind what's just been covered here. Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. What are they all about? God's sovereignty in salvation. That God is the one who does what He does for His purposes and for His glory above all else. No one has given to God that God would repay. This, is, this, this speaks to even the, the element of, what if we try to figure this all out and we say, you know what, you know how God came about with salvation? God looked down the corridor of time before He ever created anything. He saw what I was going to do, that I was going to choose to follow Him, and therefore, based on my decision to follow Him, God chose me to save me. The problem with that thinking is that it then compels God to act based on my actions or based on what I do. And the point here is, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? We can't even give Him the gift of our obedience, of our love, of our affection, and expect that He's going to give us something back. We can't give God anything that compels God to do anything. Everything that God does is out of His mercy, His grace, His sovereignty, His choice, His purposes. Everything is for Him. Nothing that He does is conditioned by our actions. Ephesians 1 echoes this. And I want you to catch the end of this. Maybe this is a little different way than you've thought about this before. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4, says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Then it goes on and says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. There's nothing in those verses that talks at all about what we do, about our choice, about our sovereignty, our control, our purpose. It's all about His sovereignty, His purpose, His choice, and what He wants to accomplish. But I left off the last phrase in those verses. The whole thing, again, He chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And where does it all lead? To the praise of His glorious grace. The whole point of God's sovereign control over everything, including our salvation, is to lead to our praise, to our worship of His grace. That's good news. So many times we hear discussions around God's sovereignty and it it stirs up angst and even anger or frustration or I don't get it or I don't like it or it's rubbing me the wrong way or I want to to be able to wrap my head all the way around this. And the, the whole point of what Paul is saying here is how Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable. How inscrutable are His ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who's given Him a gift that He might be repaid? We aren't to get all of that. We're just to accept what God says 
And the result of it is praise and worship. And the good news is, is try worshiping God with everything in you and be miserable. It doesn't work that way. If you're a believer, full-blown worship leads to great joy. We are made to worship. Why? I, I ask this all the time in the high school group. Why? Maybe this is not... Uh, my, my timing is, is getting dated now, but, you know, like when Justin Bieber was like, you know, all the rage, why do all these girls like scream and go crazy at the concert and then they like pass out and cry and they're like overwhelmed and it's because they're worshiping with everything in them, Justin Bieber. They're just misdirecting the worship, but it's pure joy. They wouldn't want to be doing anything else. It's out of pure joy. And the point is, is, God is so much better than Justin Bieber. Go ahead and tweet that. Um, (laughs) God is so much better than anyone, anything, everything. We are made to worship Him. We are made to praise the glory of His grace, and that is intrinsically, definitionally tied to our joy. And so when I hear that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that He is overwhelmingly beyond what I can ever consider or think about, It should compel in us that we want to praise and to worship Him, not to want to fight against it. And then when we do, our joy is tied to that. This is God's sovereign greatness. And then we see as we continue through this passage, God's merciful goodness. Verse 36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. From Him. He is the source of of all things. He is the creator. Everything emanates from him. Everything comes from him. Colossians 1.16 says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Octavius Winslow in the 1800s said this, so completely was Jesus bent on saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. So completely was Jesus bent on saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Everything is from him. Even the death of the Son of God on a tree he created by men he created and sustained and nurtured. Now let me suggest to you a a consideration on this. Nothing in your life will ever happen that will be worse than the murder of God. Nothing in your life will ever happen that will be worse than the murder of Jesus. And yet, God intended, God orchestrated for that to happen before the foundation of the world. And he had ultimate glorious purpose in that that was leading to his glory and to our good for all time. If God can take that and make that into our driving source of eternal joy and praise for forever, whatever it is that you're concerned about today or at any point in life, how could he not do that abundantly more? Everything is from God, even the things that we don't like, but that point us and bring us to our eternal joy. Everything is from Him, for from Him and through Him. Everything happens through Him. 
He is the sustainer of all, the governor of all. Everything is executed through Him. How often do you go through your day and maybe you get into the day halfway and you have not given any thought or consideration to God and to what He is doing in the course of that day or in your life in that day? It's functional atheism. We are acting as if we are atheists, denying the existence of God when we don't give Him consideration. Everything is through Him. 1 Corinthians 8, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's all through Him. Everything is from Him and according to His wisdom and His riches and according to His judgments, and according to His ways. And everything is through Him, and everything is to Him. To Him. He is the singular goal. He is the final goal. Everything is to Him. The world exists for God. Newsflash, the world does not exist for you. The world does not exist for me. We think that it does. We act like it does way too often, even though we wouldn't put it in those words. We go wayward in our theology. We go wayward in our lives. Everything falls apart the moment that we put ourselves above God. When we see that He is first and we come far after Him, when we see that He is the one that is beyond our understanding, it's not that God needs to understand us or that we need to wrap our brains around Him. We see Him as the goal. He is the source, the sustainer, the singular goal of all things. He is the ultimate. Everything works together for Him to accomplish His purposes. And don't forget the theme of Romans 9 through 11 here. Yahweh promised to save Israel. Deliverance seemed impossible to Israel. And yet God had planned all of history and continues to plan and to execute in such a way that He fulfills His promises in unexpected ways to Israel, to us, and yet here we are standing on the sidelines looking at what's happening in life and going on in the world and judging God and saying, God, how are you going to do this? Why are you allowing this to happen? How come this is happening? I think this is a better idea. This is what you should do. And Paul is standing here at the end of Romans chapter 11 saying, God is sovereign over all this happening with Israel. God is sovereign over all this happening in individual lives. God is in control and he erupts in praise. Saving Israel seemed unlikely. I would suggest saving any one of us would seem unlikely. And yet, that's exactly what God has done. And so we can trust Him in all things. He is the source and the means of all things. No one could be His counselor. No one should expect payment from Him. God is the giver, not the recipient of wisdom. He's the one who gives all things to us not the one who receives benefits from us. So verses 35, 33 to 35 are focused on God's sovereign greatness. And then in verse 36, we see um, God's merciful goodness. And now at the end of verse 36, we see God's unrivaled glory. So God's sovereign greatness, His merciful goodness, and now His unrivaled glory. And it just says simply here at the end of verse 36, to Him be glory forever. Amen. And that's the heartbeat of the Christian life. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God's unmatched glory. Romans, the whole book of Romans ends in chapter 16. 
in, in verse 27, it says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Paul echoes that again as he finishes his letter. Ephesians 3 says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Throughout the pages of scripture, there is a call to see and to recognize God's glory in everything. God's glory is the ultimate. Our glory is not. God has arranged salvation and history to bring, around, bring about maximum glory to himself, which includes our eternal joy. But his glory is the primary objective. His work among the nations leads to his eternal glory. His work in our lives leads to his eternal glory. This is the point of Romans 1 through 11. All of this that he does in our lives and the world around us, it becomes a monument to his faithfulness that he keeps every promise in his word. And God has promises for us that are undeniably reliable and that there is eternal joy for us in his presence for forever. And the amen at the end of this indicates Paul's intense wish for God's purpose to receive glory and that this will be realized and seen in all of our lives. And so all of this brings us to three final points. Why was this praise so timely? How does it correct faulty thinking? And what transformed living does it inspire? And so why was this um, praise so timely? In light of God's glory and, and gospel that has been revealed in chapters 1 through 11, when we get the gospel, when it lands on our hearts, when we see Him, we aren't going to help but be able to respond in uncontained praise. We want to break out in praise. It is the appropriate response to God's plans for Israel. It's the appropriate response to salvation. It is our appropriate response all the time to praise the glory of His grace. We should be overwhelmed with the goodness of God and all that He is, just like Paul is. When we consider the theology of of the gospel and what God has done for us, it should bring us to praise and to worship. You seen those videos that go around like on YouTube or passed around in different social media where you see you know, a parent or a, or a sibling who's been away um, in Afghanistan or Iraq or some military person and then they, they show up and there's a surprise to the kid that's in school or at a football game or wherever they might be and the kids go on about doing their day, doing the normal things that they do, and all of a sudden their eyes shift and they see that loved one that's there in that moment. And then the kid just turns around and goes back to what they've been doing all along. No, what happens? They turn their eyes, they see their mom, their dad, their brother, whoever it is, and without fail, they bolt, they run. And it is a linebacker hitting a running back at full speed and they tackle that person and they embrace that person and they are crying and they are overwhelmed with joy. It is a response of exuberant joy. As great as it might be to see a father, a mother, a sibling, how much better is it to see Jesus, to see the gospel, to understand the reality and the truth of the gospel? The point is, our exuberant, over-the-top response to what God has done, to who God is, is always appropriate, and yet probably too rare for most of us. 
We should be enthusiastic in our worship, in our praise. I, I see Romans 11 that Paul has been going through making this detailed doctrinal case and he's getting ready to get to the application and he just can't help himself for these four verses but to explode in praise and in worship. It just comes out. And we see the truth of who God is and what he does and the truth of the gospel. It's right for us to respond in that way. And so this praise and this worship is timely. It's, it's timely in the sense that it's always appropriate. It's always right. And then it corrects our faulty thinking. It puts God ahead of us. And that is the, the north star of thinking correctly. And you may think, why do I care if I get everything about God accurately or right? Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says to the Father, this is eternal life to know you. Knowing God is eternal life. We want to think accurately about him. And these verses help to clear up inaccurate thinking that results from thinking that we know better than God, that we have a better idea of who He is. We have a better idea of who He should be. We have a better idea of what He should do, of what should happen. And these verses remind us that God is over us. He knows more than us. He is bigger than us. And our response is just to obey, to recognize His authority, to submit to it, to embrace it, to embrace Him, and to love and to follow Him and know that He is going to work all things together for His glory and for our good. We want to receive his word. We don't want to resist him. We want to submit to what he says. We live in an unsteady world. We have unsteady minds, unsteady circumstances. And I think we're all looking for something steady to hold on to, something firm that we can hold on to. God's word is steady in an unsteady world. God is steady. He is someone that we can depend on in everything that we do. And so as we... Look for that steadiness. We hold on to Him. We find our joy in Him. We say, I can trust you and so I can have joy that emanates in every way. But it, it is a fight that we have to recognize and we encourage one another to do. We want to fight for our own joy by fighting to see God as God and not ourselves. Our joy is robbed when we think that we know better than God. Our joy is robbed when we think that we have a better idea of what should happen and those expectations aren't being met. When we see God as God and we trust that He is in control, that He is sovereign, He is bigger than us, and that there is eternal joy in worshiping and praising Him for forever, we can rest in that and joy is going to be the natural result of that. So when we focus on God's glory and we worship and we praise Him, it leads to our joy and it leads to, we want to think rightly about Him toward that end. And it leads to transformed living transformed living. When we see God accurately and we praise and we worship Him, it's going to change the way that we live. Consider um, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. We saw the Lord seated on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of the robe filling His temple, and the angels are flying all around Him, and they're saying, holy, 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 and the thresholds of the temple are shaking. It's filling with smoke, and Isaiah's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm ruined, I'm falling apart, I'm coming undone. And God sends the angels to burn his mouth and to clean it and to, to forgive him. And then God says, whom shall we send, who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, hey, find somebody else, and goes on. Now Isaiah had 
this vision of accurately of who God was, and he was overwhelmed by a proper, right, overwhelming response to who God is. And in that response, God says, whom shall we send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's like, here am I, send me. When we see and worship and praise God, we're just going to say, here am I, send me. It leads to a transformed life. We want to get that theology of the first 11 chapters and let it erupt in praise. And then the rest of what we go through in the last four, five chapters of Romans is going to naturally come out of a changed life because we want to follow Him. We want to praise Him. We want to say, here am I. Send me. Use me. Our worship is going to naturally follow. And then what's going to come out of that is we're going to have unity in the body because we're all going to be not looking at ourselves, not looking at our interpersonal differences and problems. We're going to be looking at Christ. We're going to be looking at all that He is and saying everything comes from Him and through Him and everything is to Him. It takes our eyes off of ourselves, focuses on Him. It brings about unity. And then that unity explodes out of these four walls to the world around us, to where we are going to look different, act different, behave differently, and is going to point to Jesus. We're going, it's going to strengthen our evangelism. It's going to give us a heart to see people who know Christ and want to know Christ. Our enthusiasm and our joy and our praise and our worship will be contagious to each other and to the world around us. We want to be consumed by the reality of the truth of who God is and let it flow out in praise, in worship, in exuberance, in all that we are and all that we do. We want to keep our eyes intently focused on Christ the whole time. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder that Paul presents to us, this reminder of all that you are and that we are not. God, help us not to be anxious as we come to face the reality of the truth of you, but that we would have joy and trust, and confidence, and faith, God, that we would be strengthened by a greater understanding of what we do know about you, and we'd have confidence and be strengthened even by the fact that there, are so, there is so much that we don't know about you. God, help us to be a people who want you, want to see you, want to pursue you, want to proclaim you. Give us hearts that just explode in exuberant joy as we contemplate the greatness and the goodness of all that you are. And that others would see that, grant us unity in this church and effectiveness in the world around us that all flow from a desire to praise and to worship you and to you be the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.